That song is a favorite of mine, and uh, it takes me back down memory lane. When I sing Standing on the Promises, it reminds me of having sung that just a few hours ago. Good times. We are on Sunday nights studying God's amazing grace, looking at God's amazing grace from the perspective of the everyday, not just in the eternal sense, of course, the greatest gift that David mentioned in his prayer of Jesus, but the everyday sense and how he pours that out to us. And as we look at the Bible characters, I want us hopefully not to miss the fact that he's still working in our lives. That it's not just a matter of uh, this is when God worked and these are the people through whom he worked, which I believe all that. But it's also a matter of getting us to think a little more about how God's working in our lives. Tonight I want to talk to you about abusing God's amazing grace. As we think about that, I want to ask you, what is the, the most foolish deal you ever got yourself into? The most foolish deal you ever made with someone. When I was a boy, I remember my stepdad thinking it was hilarious that he was going to teach me a game. I had, a, for some reason, a stack of quarters on the table. He said, would you like to play a game? I said, sure. He said, it's a game you can try to win at if you figure it out. He said, what I'm going to do, I'll take one of these quarters and put it down. And I'm going to take this penny here, I'm going to flip it. Heads I win, tails you lose. That seemed reasonable. Some of you are like, okay, I don't get it yet. Heads I win, tails you lose. Okay? One person saying that, it's sort of a one-sided deal. You guys need some coffee before you come to church on Sunday night, apparently. This is a very one-sided deal. If my stepdad flipped heads, he would win. If he flipped tails... I would lose. Now, you would think I would have picked up on this, but this took me uh, several times, and I watched my little stack of quarters getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why I kept losing this game. I thought it was a 50-50 shot. Surely I had to win at some point. It was a silly lesson that I'll never forget because it was such a bad deal. Bad deals can teach us things if we are wise enough to learn from them after the fact. Tonight's character is uh, a character who made a, a very bad deal, and it's found in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 and following. I hope if you're a, a Bible, I hope that you're a Bible reader. I hope also that you're a Bible studier, uh, and you'll be turning with me to Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. And we learned a lesson about a, a a guy who made a terrible, awful deal concerning the very good gift that he'd been given. These are the generations of Isaac, starting now in verse 19. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, this is the end of verse 23, and this is a clue that this is going to be an unusual set of siblings. When her first day, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is that birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. As we step into this story, the first thing that is very apparent is that Isaac and Rebekah had a legacy of faith. In, um, prior to this story, kind of catching it up, Sarah has died, Abraham married Keturah, and Abraham dies at age 175. And he leaves the blessing that God had promised him to Isaac and to his descendants. Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham, their father, with their mother at the cave of Machpelah. Isaac carries the blessing, the promise. Now this is the second generation of the promise from God that's to be fulfilled. And then at the end of chapter 15 is a list of Ishmael's genealogy, which is the fulfillment of God's promise to Ishmael. Uh, Of course, his mother was Hagar, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Abraham had exemplary faith. We've already said that. He believed God, and he did exactly what God told him to do. And so this legacy of faith, no doubt, was instilled within Isaac as well. You know, of course, Isaac having experienced your dad taking you up to the mountain to worship, and oh, by the way, you're the sacrifice. I'm pretty sure Isaac didn't forget that. Okay, it was a, it was a teachable moment. But I think in, in other ways, Isaac no doubt saw the faith of his father and saw it lived out, not just talked about, as he lived his life. And so when it, he finds his wife, Rebecca, and she's been bearing, barren now for 20 years, he prays to the Lord. He calls out to him. And you know that this was probably a very fervent prayer because he watched in his parents and he no doubt heard the story and the, the sibling rivalry that he had with Ishmael and all of that was explained. So I'm sure that Isaac didn't want to relive the family legacy in that regard. 
But he called to the Lord. He didn't come up with a plan on his own. He said, listen, Lord, you know, this is the problem and only you can fix it. Rebecca also calls out to the Lord uh, during a, what seems to be a difficult pregnancy. Uh, why is this happening within me, she says. So Abraham has established this legacy of faith that God credited to him as righteousness. And it seems to have been passed down in Isaac and Rebecca's life as well. They are people who love the Lord and who want to serve him. The struggle between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, starts in the womb. Um, and let me, before we get to the full-on part of the struggle, let me talk about the, the right of the firstborn. Um, I like talking about this partially because I am a firstborn. In, in different cultures, it works differently, but, and we know a little bit more about it biblically in the Mosaical Law. In the patriarchal system, we don't know as much. Um, it seems to follow this idea of the uh, primogenitor, is what it's called. Um, he gets the, the blessing in the family. Regardless of how many siblings there are when there's an inheritance, the firstborn gets the lion's share. He gets two times as much as everybody else. And the family headship, who was the, considered the leader of the family once dad died, was always went to the firstborn. Under the Moses, uh, Moses' law, God's law given to Moses, uh, we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you're so interested to turn there. Deuteronomy 21, verse 15, the text of the law says, If a man has two wives, the one loved, the other unloved, and both the unloved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day he assigns his possession as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge, verse 17, this is the less confusing part and the more poignant point of this law. He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for that is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is this. So it, it brings to mind that not only uh, was the right of the firstborn an important right, but no doubt was a big part of the whole Isaac and Ishmael squabble that we looked at last week. But then in Genesis 25, if you've been paying attention, the text says this, the older will serve the younger. Now, that probably just passes by without a glance in our culture because we don't, and eh, we kind of have, you know, you, you've probably heard of uh, uh, personality based on your birth order and things like that, but there's not really any substantial rights that firstborn children have with anybody else. I mean, it just all depends on the family. But in that culture, at that time, a Jewish person reading Genesis 25, that would have, I mean, their ears would have gone up. It would have been on point. What's, what, what's this? The older serves the younger? That is not, that's not the law. That's certainly not our culture. That's certainly not within our tradition. Why is this prophecy being made? Okay. We said they had a struggle that began from the beginning. 
They had very similar beginnings, Jacob and Esau. They had uh, a legacy and a reputation of the name that they bore. The, the, the father, their father was Isaac, and their grandfather, being Abraham, uh, an illustration that just came to pass this week. You know, Billy Graham died. Everybody around the world, almost without exception, understands the, the, the impact that he left on the world. Who carries that legacy? Well, who did you see this week? His son, Franklin, his grandchildren. Uh, they are the ones that carry that legacy, and they, it's, it's a weight, you know. There's a responsibility attached to it. I have no doubt that, that there was a little bit of pressure on that. Um, you know, people can bear the weight of the name, of the legacy of their parents and grandparents. Looking over here, I'm seeing Steve Tandy. Might know a thing about that. A little bit of pressure bearing the name. Looking at Tyler. A little bit of pressure concerning who your dad is. Jacob and Esau both had that same pressure. They both had that same expectation, that same rep reputation, that same family. Oh, you're of Abraham. You're of Isaac. Isaac, the text says that he marries at 40. He's a father at 60. And that's when the trouble really seems to start. Now, Esau the first is the natural recipient of what, the birthright blessing. His name means Harry, which is, you know, a great, hilarious name. Uh, because he came out red and hairy. He came out looking like a garment. Um, Imagine your firstborn child, you're excited, you're, you're thrilled at the prospects. If all your friends have had their children and you've, you've been so jealous to see that cute, cuddly little baby and out comes your child looking something like Chuck Norris. Uh, this is the picture I have of Esau. He was a very manly baby, uh, which is my theory on where they came up with the name. I realize their word translations and all that, but I just think it was... You saw that baby? I think that's where Esau came from. The second is Jacob, and his name means he grasped the heel, which is what he was actually doing. But there's a word play on that, and it, it means he's deceptive. He kind of has this, um, the idea of people who are all too eager to grab the glory uh, and spread the blame. Uh, he's, he deceives. He, he's a bit of a snake. Um, perhaps you've had a business transaction or a transaction where you went through it and afterward you felt kind of slimy, like maybe somebody played you a little bit. Uh, Jacob had that name as a reputation. Um, it, it was a bit of an unsavory reputation. We'll see this a little bit in his life uh, for being kind of a swindler. These two brothers, their descendants, would bring two different types of people who would constantly... I mean, it was not just sibling rivalry between these two twins. It was sibling rivalry all the way through their heritage. The Israelites and the Edomites uh, had many different back-and-forth altercations in the rest of the text. 
After the womb, most of their similarities stopped. The twins ended up looking very different. Esau, we're told, is a skillful, a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Um, you picture kind of a Phil Robertson type, okay? He's out there, he's probably got a substantial beard, he probably goes out for weeks on end, and he's good at it, he's skillful, he's a master of, of his hunt, which dad likes and dad appreciates. Jacob is different, he's a quiet man, he's a, what they would call a tent dweller. Um, by the way, that's culturally where the women usually are. So, we miss some of these pictures, but what we're getting is, here's a guy who likes living in the city, here's a guy who likes living in the country. Here's a guy who likes to hunt and fish, here's a guy who likes to cook and sew. Here's a guy who likes hanging out with dad, here's a guy who likes hanging out with mom. Two boys very different. And the other problem that you get on this is that uh, you have two parents who treat those two boys very differently, which parents have to do, because... Even though your children come from the same womb, they, have, they are different. Um, but they get into favoring. They favor one versus the other. Isaac favoring Esau because he hunts, and Rebecca favors Jacob because he's probably hanging out with her. They probably talk a lot more. So, <laughs> if you keep reading in Genesis, you get to see full-on family dysfunction in chapter 27 uh, when Jacob and Rebecca conspire to deceive Esau and trick their old aging father. Uh, it's you know Jerry Springer right there in the Bible. It's bad. It is. Um, and to me, this is a helpful thing because every person, especially people in the pews, kind of come with an idea that nobody understands my family dynamics, the difficulties. You know, we put the fun in dysfunction. And, and people don't get that. Well, I, all of us have dysfunctional within our families because we've all got sin. And sin messes things up, messes people up for generations sometimes. We can take heart in this, this story because, uh, well, they didn't parent these boys exactly as they ought to. Maybe that would have made some difference. But all these in, uh, are ingredients for a recipe for some bad stew that's cooking. Esau lets his appetite control him, is the first problem. Uh, anytime you're controlled by the flesh, uh, you're going you're gonna to feed an appetite that is ravenous, and it's not going to stop. The more you feed the flesh, the more the flesh desires. He's also short-sighted. He says, what use is that birthright to me? Esau gave up. A long-term legacy of faith and a history and a blessing that started with his grandfather, and he gave that up for lunch. And not even a good lunch. Bread and lentil stew. Um, as a side note, uh, you, some of you who cook probably more than I do, uh, lentils are this kind of small pea-like plant, and when you boil them, the, the, the pods turn red when you boil them. And so this stew would have been a, a red in color. Um, the New American Standard translation of this text, Esau comes in from the wilderness and he says, let me have a swallow of that red stuff, uh, which just sounds as appetizing as all, can, all, all get out. 
Uh, and, 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 you know, this red stuff, this bowl of it, that would certainly not be lasting any more than any other meal, he didn't just sell it for a song, he sold it for stew. I always think about what Esau did at supper, or the next meal, if that was supper. What did, what happened? What he, did he ever come to his senses and say, maybe that was a bad deal? Perhaps that was a little short-sighted. Esau despised his heritage. What he did in that moment was a slap in the face to his parents. Um, he forgot who he was. In Genesis 28, the text says in verse 8 and 9, When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife a Canaanite woman. <clears throat> In chapter 36, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Um, it seems Esau, now whether it started here when he, or after he was deceived from the blessing in chapter 27, Esau had a very rebellious, contentious heart with his parents. Gave him a lot of fits and didn't seem to care too much about it, about what they thought and about what they desired for him. It was a slap in the face also to God. In Malachi chapter 2, this is interesting if you want to turn there, the last book of the Old Testament. Um, the scripture says, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, which was a, another you know, uh, referring to Esau and, and his people. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, admittedly, I don't buy into the idea that you know, you're guilty of your father's or your grandfather's or great-great-grandfather's sin. I don't think that we bear the guilt of one another's sin. But something happens in Esau that begins a legacy in the wrong direction. It's a race toward the bottom. It's a spiral downward. And by the time we get to Malachi, God is so fed up with the Edomites and their attitude towards him that he says, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. That's pretty strong words. That's, that's very severe. I think it started with this despising of his heritage. Jacob, we've been picking on Esau long enough. Jacob sought what he missed in the womb. Secondborns, at least in that society, didn't get second chances. Uh, he made him, he, he knew the value. And I think that's, that's one of the, at least Jacob was smart enough to understand the value of what the birthright was and where the blessing, the importance of the blessing. But he basically says, uh, okay, I'll give you some stew, swear me an oath which in that day was a legally binding thing. He took his birthright and gave it to him. It was essentially saying, I'll give you this stew. I need you to have sign this contract first. 
and we're going to have it notarized. Uh, this is the best deal in the history of deals. Again, he was being deceptive. He knew what Esau had, and he knew that Esau didn't understand the value of it. Worse than that, Esau despised the birthright, the text says. To feel contempt is what this means, to detest, to hate, to loathe. Why in the world does Esau despise the birthright? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have any other answer other than he might have been hangry, I don't know. But he, he, we, we make bad decisions when we are hungry, and he seems to be making a very short-sighted decision here. Why did he hate his birthright? Well, in my estimation, he either didn't know the value of what he had, or he did know, and he didn't care. And that's immoral. A couple of examples, so think about it. Um, imagine finding a Picasso painting at a garage sale with a sticker on it for $5. If you're able to buy that, that's wise. The person who put the sticker on the Picasso is foolish. Most likely didn't know what they had as they sold it. Another example. Um, husband cheats on his wife. She's in fire and fury, angry, rightfully. So she decides is in the matter of the divorce, to sell his fully restored 1968 Corvette for $1,000. Now, the difference in those two scenarios is she knows exactly what it's worth. And she sells it cheap out of spite. Makes you think differently. What was Esau thinking? Did he not know the value of what he had, or did he know and despise his legacy and despise his father and his grandfather out of spite. Let's finish by looking at... Uh, it says four lessons there, but your eyes are bad. It actually just says three. Number one, take stock of your blessings. Uh, it's easy to be hard on Esau, but if we're not careful, we can fall in the same trap. We can fall absolutely in the same way of thinking. Uh, it's been said, what we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. I'm looking down at the teens and they're all in their Bibles. And I appreciate that. Um, if your parents try to instill with you godly values and you have family devotionals at home and they bring you to Bible class and they, they ask you to participate in youth group and, you know, you realize probably you don't really have a choice in the matter, right? They're trying to, to instill with you a legacy of faith, but it's up to you whether or not to accept the blessing or not. If, you, if that's just a part of your life, if, if you've obtained, it, obtained, obtained faith too cheaply, you will esteem it too lightly. You won't value its importance if you don't begin to own it yourself, to make it yours, to make your relationship with God yours and not just your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. 
You've got to take stock of your blessings. This is not, by the way, not just a lesson for teens. We've got to all do that. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I hope you understand I'm t- speaking primarily of your spiritual blessings. You should take time to appreciate the giants on whose shoulders you stand. Esau despised both his father and his grandfather in his actions because he obtained it too cheaply. He didn't understand the price that had been paid to get to that point. We should be grateful. So back to you. If you're raised in a Christian home, if your mother and father love the Lord, if they do their very best to teach you His Word, I'm not saying they're perfect, but they do their best to instill with you faith, I hope you'll take the time to tell them thank you. As I'm speaking to you directly, as someone who didn't have that gift, and I've watched people with that gift despise their birthright, despise the blessing because they didn't appreciate it, they didn't take stock of it. Do you have wise and godly shepherds who keep peace in church and lead well? Do you thank them for that? you tell them that you appreciate them and what they do? You should take stock of your blessings because what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. Number two, take the long view. Philippians 2 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In the journey of faith, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You've got to be patient. You've got to be faithful. No one wants to hear you complain. You need to be better, not bitter. We have a multitude of blessings from God if we take stock of them, point number one. If we think of your job, your work, your family, your marriage, your church, your children, do those blessings come with problems? Yes, because they involve people. The worst of which is you. Those blessings come with problems because they involve people. What makes them good is that they come from God. Do not be godless like Esau. He gave up what was rightfully his in exchange for what he could have right now. All sin, in my estimation, has its roots right here. Trading what's rightfully yours in exchange for what you can have right now. I know this is not the strict definition, but that's a pretty good definition of sin, is a really bad trade. Whether it was starting in the garden, and they had the, they had the perfect world. Eve, I mean, if you really think about it, she had the perfect man. 
I thought that joke would land. It really didn't. They had it perfect, and they, they, they messed it up. Because she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food and believed that she believed what the enemy told her, that she could be like God, and she gave it up. She gave it up. We're here in a broken world among a broken race of Adam, and we're here because Eve and Adam found some fruit that God said they couldn't have and they partook of it. That's a bad trade. Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You've got to take the long view. People who mess up take the short view and exchange what's rightfully theirs in exchange for what they can have right now. And it applies all across the board. Most people that choose to sin and get entrapped in it, at some point made the bad trade for 50 years of marriage and they trade that for one night of pleasure. A child will, will exchange everything that they've been given and mess up in a night of partying and drinking and drug use. We've heard those stories. They exchange what is right in their hands and give it up for something so short-sighted. So take the long view. And finally, take cover. Protect your spiritual heritage. When, you, when you've taken stock of it, when you, when you see the value of it, hopefully you'll protect that because it matters. Family faith was a part of Jacob and Esau's life. Isaac and Rebekah did so purposely, and they lived it. But free will is a two-sided coin, you know. If only Esau had valued his blessing as much as Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah did. And there's a lesson for us, too. Grandparents and parents, we have to be intentional and purposeful about passing on our faith. But we have to realize at some point that that child will make a choice that has nothing to do with you. It's them practicing their free will. Can we influence that? Can we coach that? At the end of the day, it's their choice to make. We have to not take responsibility when someone else makes a bad trade. We hope, we pray that they'll make good trades. But don't beat yourself up at night thinking about what you could have done different, forgetting that they had a choice to make too. Uh, obviously, the, the situation in Parkland, Florida, terrible. Um, something no parent should have to do is bury their child. And in, in going back in hindsight 2020 and all of that, and what I've, what I've seen in the big picture 
is that everyone else is now trying to fix and prevent from happening again, which is one messed up kid going in and causing a lot of evil and a lot of harm. And everyone else is to be blamed for this kid's responsibility. He alone bears that. Now, were there other people that could have impl- could could law enforcement, could all these people, could they have stepped in? Were there some signs? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, that young man made the decision that changed the lives of 17 families forever. And we need to remember that. Our culture has gotten a little bit away from people having to take responsibility and recognizing that we all have a choice to make, to do good or to do evil. Tonight I want to invite you to think about what Esau did. He made a horrible trade that he couldn't undo. Tonight, you can make a great choice that's already been done for you if you'll just accept it. The gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the family of God, all of that can be yours because of the firstborn son who understood his blessing and lived rightly according to it. You don't have to swindle it from him. He's willing to offer it to you freely. If you're ready, if you haven't taken it, or if you've partaken it, maybe you've forgotten the value of it. We'd like to pray for you and encourage you, whatever we can. Uh, Please meet me down front if you have a need, together as we stand and sing.